you get a lot of cooks now that, you know, they see all this crazy stuff that chefs are doing, but they don't realize that a lot of those chefs techniques, the foundation is, is amazing. And then there's, there's a lot of kids that skip that stage and just want to sous vide and, you know, turn things with liquid nitrogen and stuff like that. So I, I really think you need to have the technique of how to, you know, roast a chicken and sear a piece of fish with the crispy skin and, and those, and then you can branch out and start getting creative, but you need to have that technique. I, I think that's very important. Amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 92 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Matt Conroy from the Neo Bistro Lutes in Washington, D.C. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with American culinary leaders about their passion, their path to success, and how their cultural background influences their creative process. You can find the information about the podcast and all the episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. And please follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Flavors Unknown. I met Chef Matt Conroy when he was in the East Village in Manhattan before he got his rising star from Star Chefs when he was at Oxomoco in Brooklyn. I am looking forward to taste this food at Lutes next time I am in Washington, D.C. Chef McConroy learned the culinary techniques while staging and working at different restaurants at the beginning of his career. We talk about his mentors, about his passion for French and Mexican cuisines, the food at Lutes, and his passion for natural wines. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm I'm very good, very good. Excited to be uh, on here with you finally. Yes, finally. Yes, that's true. We have been talking about it for uh, several years now. I have to say, but I know you are you are very busy. But I'm really excited to have you uh, on the show. So thank you uh, for your time. I really appreciate it. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> so you you are you know a chef at Lutes in Washington D.C. It's a French bistro. So can you talk to us a little bit about the the menu at Lutes? Yeah, so we're, you know, we're a French bistro is what we're calling ourselves, but more of uh, a neo bistro. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Neo bistro? Obviously, French bistros have been around for forever. And, you know, if you were in Paris, probably 25 years ago, there was a lot of them that were just serving very mediocre food every they were on every single corner, you know, and some of them were good, but there was a lot of they just kind of got watered down. So you had a you had a movement of chefs in Paris and and stuff that were Trained very classically, worked in two, three Michelin star restaurants, but didn't, they weren't in love anymore with white tablecloths and the stuffiness. And, you know, you had to be pretty wealthy to eat in those restaurants. So you had chefs that basically were like, hey, let's take over some of these bistro locations and serve the same level of food, source very good ingredients and, but prepare it in a casual, casual setting where you can go with, you know, your friends on a Wednesday night and eat foie gras and have good wine and just have a good time, but not have to 
get dressed up and put a bow tie on to go go eat good food. I was fortunate enough to travel to Paris and work for some chefs, you know, when I was younger that did that. And it was really inspiring to me. So that's kind of what we wanted to bring to DC. So when I hear, you know, French bistro, obviously for me, it takes me back to traditional French dishes, you know, like the French onion soup, the steak tartare, the, the duck confit and so on. As it is a neo bistro, I guess there's a twist to it. But how do you find the balance between, let's say, the tradition of like French dishes, you know, that the one that I just mentioned and then your creativity? Because I, I know you from the past when we are, you're based in, in Manhattan and I know you're a very creative guy. So I'm just curious how you combine those two things together. Yeah. So, I mean, no matter what, it's still based in traditional techniques. And, you know, so we, if we're doing, you know, there's a lot of the sauce work and stuff is the same, but, you know, there's ways to lighten it up for, for Neo Bistros. You know, we're not using ruse and everything and we're not using, you know, there's more like salsa verdes and fresh herbs and stuff like that. That's a big part of that movement also is just like not everything is, you know, we use brown butter all the time there, you know, there is stuff that's the, it, the flavors are still there and the, the technique is the same, but just f- finding ways that it's lighter and fresher and you feel better eating, eating the food. So that was, that's like a big part of it. But the, you know, I still reach for, you know, a Scoffier's cookbook for inspiration of, to, to find the, the base of, of what we're doing, but it's, you know, just a fresher, you know, more modern way to cook. Okay. And so do you open as well, like the space to, like other influences. And I mean, you mentioned Salsa Verde and so on. So I'm guessing that there's uh, influences from other like countries and cultures coming in and playing in, uh, in the mix or? Yeah, of, of course, you know, especially like you, you touch base, like living in New York, you're surrounded by, you know, what makes it such a great food city is there's every type of food there. So, and as you know, I've cooked Mexican food before. And so, you know, part of being able to travel now and also with the internet, you can find everything anywhere now it's it's kind of all at your fingertips so yeah there's inspirations that come from other places and you know as long as you respect and and treat that stuff you know the right way i i feel it it, you should be able to use it you know you you even have chefs like john george was reaching for yuzu in the you know 90s and that was unheard of and you know so there's always been those little tweaks and obviously asian flavors are everywhere so there's a lot of that stuff you talked before that uh, sometime you reach out to even like the Escoffier book, you know, for inspiration. But generally speaking, what's your sources of inspiration? You can see behind me, it's uh, a lot of cookbooks for sure. I probably have too many and every time a new one shows up, Isabel's not too happy with me, but I, I, I'm always buying new ones. And, you know, it's it's something I love, but there's also classic ones that, you know, I, I'll always have and they're great inspirations. Like everybody, there's there's Instagram and there's the internet, you can find all kinds of recipes and techniques. And some people are doing blogs still and stuff like that. There's some cool, cool things out there. You know, you have like Noma doing their fermentation labs. And there, there's all kinds of things just to see like, you know, there's people that are way, way smarter than me that are doing things that are just eye-opening. And there's a lot of inspiration out there. What is the first step that, um, you know, you start with or the series of steps when you are creating a, a new dish? Oh, there's a lot of different ways. A lot of times it just starts with the a notepad and just writing down maybe ingredients I want to work with or stuff that's coming in season and then just writing lists and, you know, starting with, you know, a couple things that go together and then seeing how I can maybe, you know, if you take basic ones and then adapt them into something else. So I've always used the reference like the peanut butter and jelly. And then how can you manipulate those flavor combinations to other things, a different nut or a different sweet element or something like that. So a lot of it's that it just notepads are, I have notepads all over the place. I always carry one with me. That's where a lot of the that stuff comes from. 
So you, you mentioned different execution, for instance, based on the peanut butter and jelly. Do you remember some maybe crazy flavors combination that you, that you have done? And in, in fact, some maybe led into something that you, you stopped because it was not that good, but some others turn into like a dish that you lo- really loved. It's a dessert, but I mean, we can, we can talk about it. And I've done it at, you know, you've probably eaten it actually before in some, some of the other restaurants is we've done black sesame with the Concord grape and everyone, they, they never understand it, but then they eat it and they go, oh, it's peanut butter and jelly. And, and that's always been one that like people never understand it when I tell it to them and then they eat it and they're like, oh, wow, this, this really works. And it's, it's always that familiar, familiar thing. And then I, I always like that when people have food that they eat and they, it sparks like something that they, they had when they were, younger or something that's like super familiar to them. Like we do a dish right now, a palm paisan. So potatoes that we shred and fry in duck fat. And it sounds really fancy when you say it to people, then they eat it and they go, oh, this is like the best McDonald's hash brown we ever had. (laughs) That was actually written in our our food, food review from the Washington Post here. And the food critic, he started it by saying, I don't mean to offend you, but this is what it reminds me of. And, uh, I was like, no, that's that's great. Like, it, it means it's very comforting to, to people when they eat it. So that to me is is great. And is your creative approach like uh, something that you do individually or uh, collaborative? Because you were talking about, you know, I have a lot of notepads and I, I'm taking a lot of notes, which is the individual part of the process. But I'm curious is if you have as well a collaborative with uh, with your team. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm lucky to have Isabel next to me that she I, I bounce a lot of things off of off of her for. Hey, I'm thinking about this or that, but yeah, I'm where I'm not the type of chef that it's like, this is it. Not that's it. A lot of times it's maybe I have a ingredient. Hey, we want to, we're talking right now about spring menu because it's really right around the corner. We want to get rabbit on the menu, but how do we do it? So it's definitely a conversation with the cooks of like, Hey, what do you guys think? Is there anything, you know, cause they do the same thing. They're, you know, reading cookbooks and they're on Instagram and they're, Hey, or, you know, they've worked in other restaurants. Hey, have you guys done rabbit? What do you like to do? Have you ever had rabbits? Some of them have never worked a rabbit. So it's like, it's a good conversation to have with them. Especially as young cooks, it's a good way to, even if they can only get one little, they get the garnish even. They start with the garnish on the dish. Like that's a good way to start building their confidence as cooks. And hey, you know, they're proud. If, if, you, if you're a cook and you get part of a, a dish or the whole dish or the puree, or the, that's, you know, that's how it starts and you build your confidence in what you're doing. So it's, it's always, you know, we, we sit down sometimes and talk about it, but it's always an open conversation, yeah. So how do you like to uh, to prep a uh, rabbit? Because my, my mom used to make rabbits, you know, when I was back in France, obviously. But I would say every other Sundays, probably, we had rabbits on the menu. So I'm just curious. Uh, curious how you, you, I'm sure you have different ways, but what's yeah, your favorite? Yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people, just because it is, it's, there's not a, there's a good amount of meat, but it's still a relatively small animal. I'd say most times you see it, it's braised and it's delicious. So what we're talking about doing is probably doing the, just getting the hind legs. And making and basically making a, a farce to stuff inside of the leg, like bone it out, and start, serve it that way. So that way you can you, you can cook it all whole and then be able to slice it nice. That's about as far as we got. So we haven't figured out the whole dish. Morels were came up in the conversation because it'll be springtime. Rabbit yeah. and morels go great together. True. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe we'll sneak in some uh, some some type of wine, maybe some vinjon or something like that to to sneak it in because we we do a lot of wine at the restaurant. There's some. We're on, we're on the right track, but... Uh. Okay, very cool. You talked about um, before, you know, techniques, and then you were talking about creativity. From your point of view, what's the most important for you, like the techniques or creativity? That's a good question. That's uh, it, can go, it can go both ways, but I, I really think the technique is, 
the most important part of it. I've definitely been to restaurants so you see it and there's, yeah, it's very creative, but it's not, it's not enjoyable because they're missing the, you know, the foundation of it. And that's something I'll definitely say there's, you get a lot of cooks now that, you know, they see all this crazy stuff that chefs are doing, but they don't realize that a lot of those chefs techniques, the, the foundation is, is amazing. You know, you could say, make me chicken jus or, or any of that stuff. And those chefs could, could make a, the best you've ever had probably. And then there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of kids that, skip that stage and just want to sous vide and turn things with liquid nitrogen and stuff like that. So I, I really think you need to have the technique of how to, you know, roast a chicken and sear a piece of fish with the crispy skin and, and those, and then you can branch out and start getting creative and, you know, that, but you need to have that, that technique. I, I think that's very important. How did you acquire all those techniques? Because I mean, you, you, you shared it already that, you know, when, different interviews and so on that uh, you, ha you haven't been to a culinary school and but you went into like you know different restaurants and uh, stage and and work with uh, a lot of different chefs so did you miss the fact not uh, going to a culinary school i'm just just curious i think initially i was you know a little disappointed not going going to culinary school but i think in the long run if you have the right attitude going into the you know the, the field and you know you're willing to you know put in your time and stuff like that i think it benefited me. Obviously, I worked very hard, put a lot of hours, like you mentioned, I did stodges in my free time. And I tried to, you know, if I needed to, if someone was butchering a pig or doing something I didn't know what to do, maybe showing on my day off or showing up an hour early to like, you know, no one's going to hold your hand to show you every little thing in the kitchen. And there's always things going on that you don't know what to do. Especially if you're, you know, if you're busy with your one station, you may never, if you're working garmage, you may never see what the meat cook's doing or what you know, the sous chef is doing or stuff like that. So, you know, you have to put in the time and, and, and want to learn and ask questions. I, I think if you're a cook and you're not asking questions in the, in the kitchen, you're, you know, you're missing out on a big percentage of knowledge there. So yeah, I was always asking questions and being curious and, and, you know, showing the chef that I was interested in what was going on. And I feel like once chefs see that the cooks have interest in things, they're also more likely to come over and like, maybe there's a new ingredient that came in or something. And maybe, you know, even it's just a little thing, Hey, this, I don't know, lamb came from here. This is a farm we work with. Yeah, just little things. And, and if you show interest, that goes a long way in, in the kitchen. And that, that's what I did. It was just a, a lot of, you know, asking questions. That's really a big part of it, asking questions and keeping your eyes and ears open in the kitchen. You can see so much going on. If, even if you're chopping, ch or, you know, slicing chives in your station, like look next to you. What's the person doing next to you? And you, you can learn a lot that way. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to uh, start with a lot of student loans either. So French uh, speaking. <laughs> uh, the amount of people that I've worked with that, you know, you get out of culinary school and you're, especially if you're in a big city, you're making, you know, no money. You make enough to afford your tiny apartment with a couple of roommates and, you know, maybe go out to eat once a week. But, you know, money's not there. And yeah, so not having those loans and was, like I said, probably a blessing in the long run. And so what compelled you yourself, like to become a chef? Uh, I just, I kind of fell in love with the, I, I got a job on the weekends, a diner, like just short order cook. Basically, I started kind of as a dishwasher and kind of slash doing, you know, cracking eggs and cutting home fries when I was 14. Just little cash on the weekends, which was was nice when you're when you're that age. And I just kind of I went from that to like, you know, the cook would be like, you know, the last couple orders, he'd be tired. Hey, you want to learn how to make the omelets? So I, you know, here and there, he'd teach me, teach me things. And From there, I kind of did that all through high school. And in the summer, I would get jobs at other other restaurants, kind of work, filling in some other shifts. 
I fell in love with it right away. And I, I mean, for me, I think I was kind of fortunate to know probably by my junior year of high school, I kind of kind of knew that cooking was what I wanted to do, which I think was nice for me, whereas a lot of people go to college and have no clue what they want to do. And so I was fortunate with that. Who has been your most uh, influential mentors? Oh, I have been fortunate to work for some some pretty great chefs. That's a that's a tough question. I mean, I, I, there's definitely not just one because I've also done different types of food. So, and I guess you'd learn as well different things from each of them too. So, oh yeah, I mean, you can learn things to do and things not to do from from kind of everybody. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, one of the first kind of what got me into more serious, like I said, I was doing diners, but my dad works at a, a prep school in Andover, Mass. That's like very big Phillips Academy. It's like a big big school. And they had redone the inn there and they brought in like a pretty classically trained French chef. And I just, so I just got a job there two days a week and learned how to break a lot of, a lot of hollandaise. He just kind of, he showed me once and then he just watched me do it over and over. And I, I broke it many a times, but that's kind of, he got me into the, the French like classic stuff there. So like not, he definitely wasn't doing anything like new or modern or anything like that. It was very classic, like old school French cooking, but it was a good foundation. and. He taught me a lot, but then I moved on and I worked for a chef in Vermont called Rogan Lechtaller. And he, he had just, he was working in Boston at a couple of good places before he came back to Vermont. So he was definitely doing some more modern stuff, but like it was fun in Vermont because he also sourced everything from local farms. A lot of the cheeses and meats and vegetables, like we were going to the farms and stuff to pick it up, which really opened my eyes to that. Cause previous to that, we were just, you know, picking up a phone and, and putting in orders. So then after that, I went and worked for Tony Maz in Boston. And he's the one that probably really opened my eyes to like kind of what was just kind of be beginning in, in Paris at the time. And he had spent time in Paris himself. And he was just, his sourcing was unbelievable for ingredients. Very much like a classic brigade system in the kitchen. Still to this day, the hardest job I ever worked. Everyone worked, you know, 75, 80 hours a week there. We all, you know, cared about what we were doing. I mean, he really like his technique and his drive for how good food had to be there was it opened my eyes to a lot. And that's still a lot of what that like attention to detail is, is what I, what I took from there a lot. And then obviously after that, I ended up in New York working for Alex Stupak doing Mexican food. So that was completely new for me and, and kind of something I wanted to do because his food was so beautiful. And I knew zero about Mexican food when I never been, never did any of that. And so he opened my eyes to that. And obviously I went on to cook some more Mexican food after that. Sure. With Isabel, you cannot as well avoid it. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, you open a lot of restaurants, you know, the latest like Oxomoco and then in Brooklyn and then which is a Mexican eatery and then Lutes, you know, in Washington, D.C. So as we know, and uh, not me, but what I've heard is like opening restaurants, you know, could be like very complex and 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 stressful. So. Do you have any tips for anyone who is listening, who wants to getting into the, the restaurant business? You know, what's the, the best way how to approach like opening a, you know, a restaurant? Be prepared for everything to get delayed. That's uh, that, that'll be your first thing. So whatever you plan on your opening date, add definitely add three, four months to that minimum because that's that's always going to happen. Opening a restaurant is stressful. There's no there's no way around it. And you can prepare as much as you possibly think and have every as many lists and checklist and everything, there's going to be things that on opening night, everything's going to go wrong and things are not going to be the way you, you thought. It really, from my experience, it really takes you a couple months into it before you start hitting your stride and, and figure things out and the right staff and all that stuff. So just, it's going to be stressful. You know, you got to stay positive. And obviously, if you're opening a restaurant, it's probably something you've worked 
towards for quite a while. It's great. In the end, it's, it's great, but it's, it's, there's no way around it. It's a lot of work. But are you doing like any, you know, almost like pre-fake openings, you know, with, you know, friends and families and, you know, before like opening to public or? Yeah, you definitely, friends and family is definitely a good, good practice, you know, to get your, yes, cooking one or two dishes is, is fine. And you could say, hey, I ha we have these perfect, but when you got to, you know, pick up 10 of these and five of this and going back and forth and Yeah, no, friends and family is always a great, great way to practice and also get feedback. There's a lot of times, you know, you think something's great and you, you might, you know, you're only eating one bite of it in the kitchen or something like that. But to sit down and sit at the table and, and eat the whole plate of food or something like that, there's a lot of value in, in seeing it from someone else's eyes. Or that's, that's a good thing, too, for, for chefs is if you can ever sit down and, and actually eat the food. Again, a lot of times that you taste the sauce and then you might taste a piece of the protein or whatever it is, but it's never whole. So actually sitting down and eating your own food is, we did that for, at Oshimoko, I, there would be times where we would actually sit down and eat the plate. And, and even for the cooks to see that too, to just understand, hey, why do you say add more lemon or more salt or whatever? Like they might think it's good when they're, but like, or add less of something because, you know, they, again, they're trying one bite, not, not a whole plate. So yeah, that's, that's very important to, to do like a friends and family and stuff for, for opening. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious about something because uh, yeah, I know you are, You love, you know, French cuisine and you love, you know, as well, Mexican, you know, cuisine and Mexican dishes. So both cuisines are really well known for, you know, the, their traditional aspects and then the originality, you know, uh, aspect as well that people sometimes, especially here in America, tend to forget, you know, it's not French cuisine or Mexican cuisine, you know, it, there's so many varieties because of the regions. So French cooking, I can see it because, you know, I'm French. It's very structured and systematized and a bit rigid. <laughs> and then, you know, in a certain way. And mixing and cooking in is, in fact, like greatly probably like undocumented, you know, in terms of specific like specialties and things that people are doing, you know, within like, you know, different from one family to another and so on. So do you have like, do you have like a different way to approach this, uh, this cuisine when, you know, you work for like a French restaurant or like an, a Mexican restaurant because of those differences that exist? Yeah. I mean, of, of course there's probably, at least in English, there's probably hundreds more cookbooks available and everything in for, for French cooking. And it, it's been in the United States for probably longer And it's also more popular. I mean, if, if you looked at French restaurants 25 years ago in New York City, there's lots of great ones. Whereas if you said Mexican restaurants, they're probably, probably couldn't name three of them 25 years ago, you know? It's still newer in the United States, but there's still, there is a lot of good references. I mean, you've had Diana Kennedy doing Mexican cookbooks for years. I actually just watched a documentary about her the other day and it was eye-opening about how long she's been doing it and her travels around Mexico. So there, it's there. It's just, I think you need to work a little harder to find, find the stuff on, on Mexico, at least here. If you travel there, it's, yeah, it's definitely, you know, you go from one region to the other, it changes greatly, whether it's the chilies or the way they make the mole or wh whatever it is. But there's a lot of similarities between it too. I mean, you know, you travel through France and one region is going to do a braise this way. One's going to use this or depending on if you're north or south or, you know, what the cooking is, it's more Mediterranean or not. It, there's a lot of similarities in that. I just think it's easier to find out the information for French. Okay. So when you approach it from a Mexican standpoint, so it's, it's like going there and taking a trip to Mexico, it's probably the, the best way for you, like to get some inspiration and approach. 
if if I can go there any any time, I'll I'll take it. So yeah, if it's a if it's a business trip, I'm going there. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps. Like I said, it, it's easier, and I've been doing it longer. So for French food, it's if I read a cookbook, I can really understand what the what the flavor is or what it's going to be most times. Whereas Mexico, there's you know there's sometimes there's a chili that I've never I've never used or I've never worked with because you can only find it in that one one region that's you know growing on some mountain there that doesn't ever leave Mexico. So it's like it is beneficial to actually eat the food and, and see it. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. If there's any unique like Mexican cooking techniques that you have discovered, you know, something which is really, you know, interesting and, and different from, I would say, the traditional French techniques? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of, you know, obviously just chilies in general. I mean, you don't really have any, you know, you might get a little pomena espalette, you know, in, in France, but there's pretty much no chilies in, in French cooking. And I mean, you have a lot of, you know, like the, the ants and the, the crickets and all that stuff. You, you get a lot of that, that that's going on. And that's, you know, it's a big part of like Oaxacan cooking. And, and you, you have that. But as, I mean, as far as I know, I've never come across that in, in French cuisine either. So there, there, yeah, there's definitely like big differences in, when it comes to stuff like that. You know, there's a lot of charring and, you know, I think that's part of what works so well at Oshimoko is that wood fire is getting those charred, smoky, like, you know, even for some, you know, salsas and stuff like that, you're really going to char and burn, almost burn, like what a lot of people would consider burnt, but that's a background flavor for, for a lot of the stuff. So yeah, whereas in, you know, classic French cuisine, you're, you're not doing, you're, you're, like you said, you're, you're taught not to do that, not to get that, like necessarily like depth of flavor, you know, you might blanch tomatoes and make concasse out of it or something in a French kitchen where in Mexico, you're going to put them on a, you know, the kamal and really roast them and blend them into a salsa or something. So yeah, there, there's definitely that different approach to get, you know, the same ingredient, but, and then when it's finished, it's totally different too. So it's, it's interesting. So you were talking about traveling and always like, you know, follow you obviously and Isabel on, you know, Instagram and I said, oh, they are on a trip again. So they are in France. <laughs> they, they, they are in France. So uh, when when is your next uh, trip? Is it uh, in France? Is it Mexico? Or I was actually just one of my friends is there right now, and I was just talking to them, saying I need to book another trip to France. So well, about this time because last time you were in Jura, correct? With the, the, the Jura wines and yeah, we did. We always uh, Paris is always you know kind of the the flight in and then a couple days there and uh, you know then. You know, the very first time we, I think we did Paris the whole time just because it, you know, it's such a big city and there's so much going on and, you know, there's museums and all that. So yeah, pa Paris, but I'd like to go to Champagne actually next, I think is my next, uh, next trip. I'll definitely do Paris again, but I think, you know, touching into all these different wine regions or Champagne, whatever you want to call it is, is really my new, uh, new interest. So that's, that's probably next, but I'm due for a Mexico trip. I haven't been to Mexico city in a couple of years. So. Okay. Very cool. I'm going to France this summer, like June and July. My sister is having a, a big anniversary, you know, date. So we are all getting together. I have two brothers and one sister. So she's based in Burgundy. So oh, nice. going, I'm, I'm going to spend time in Burgundy. Well, and I know you'll be drinking some good wine there then because you're, go, you're going to the right place. It's not going to be cheap, but you'll be in the right place. Yeah, I'm lucky because my, my brother, I have another brother that lives in Avignon. So I have like all the Côte d'Iron as well. That would be my other stop. So <laughs> it, it was it, it was nice. The, the time we went to Dijon is that the friends we were with their uh, their dad had some birth year wines in the in the in the cellar for them. 
that was the first time I, I saw that. So that was that was interesting. So I was like, I, I still I, I said took that idea. I said, Oh, whenever I have a kid, that's I, I'm definitely gonna do that do that move. That's a that's a and she was telling me that's like a pretty traditional thing to do is you, you'll buy absolutely get some wine yep. like that and put it away. And you know, sometimes you might end up with something really great and sometimes you're gonna open it and it you know it didn't age so well. So that's the tradition in, in Burgundy, they do that and they buy it, you know, when the kid's born and then they usually serve it, you know, at the wedding or, you know. Yeah, that, that's exactly what he said. Or... And they had a couple, they had a couple of bottles left over and I was like, I, we had, we had dinner and I, and they, you know, the mom cooked us a, a great dinner and, and all that. And he opened a couple of bottles and I was like, oh, this is, I, I, I love that. And you know what? And, and, and uh, the joke I play on my brother-in-law is I always bring with me like uh, a tons of like bottles from, you know, from the West Coast and. You don't wine, and he's like, "Damn it, those Americans—they know how to make wine too." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah they're, they're they're figured it out. They figured it out." <laughs> so you have a passion for wine, obviously. We can see that, uh, you know, if you if anyone follows you on Instagram, but and especially for natural wine. So, do you think a natural wine is a fad? No, I mean, I, I think there's there's definitely some. There was a lot of wine, and especially when people use the word natural wine, like it doesn't really have, there's no definition for it. You know, everyone is going to have a def- different definition. This is how I kind of got into natural wine. As a chef, for me, I'm always looking for organic or local or things that are produced with as least additives as possible. So a lot of wines out there, not a lot, but a good fair amount of stuff that's out there that the people are very familiar with. There's a lot of additives to those wines, whether they're sprayed with pesticides or they're there's a lot of additives you can add to a bottle at the end of before you put it in the bottle that, you know, hey, maybe you weren't happy with the quality of the grapes. Well, there's a lot of stuff you can add to that to make it, you know, have exactly the qualities you want, put a cork in it and sell it. And every single year, every vintage is going to be pretty much the same. And you, you don't taste the grape necessarily. That's kind of how I got into natural wine is like if I'm sourcing organic vegetables in this, well, why should the wine we pour in the restaurant not kind of follow the Good same point. same thing? Yeah. So that was that was kind of where that began. And then I just I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole. But yeah, I don't think natural wine's a, a phase. I think you're actually seeing that market, but grow the right way, grow with people that are doing it the right way. You, you're now into like almost second generations of people that are doing it. And you're, you're getting some really high. Qual- There's tons of natural wines that you could pour for somebody and you could pour them a wine from, you know, Burgundy and uh, you pour them a glass and they say, wow, this is great. Oh, that's a, it's a natural wine. And they wouldn't believe you, you know, it's, yeah, they don't all have to have crazy cloudy bottles and stuff float, floating inside of them. So that, that's kind of how I got into natural wine. No, I don't think it's a, a, a phase. Do you have like three natural wines that you are passionate about that you we should absolutely try? That's a tough question. So there's uh, really what I would recommend for somebody that, you know, doesn't know about natural wines or, or something like that. Just find a good, good wine shop. Talk to them about what, you know, necessarily you like. I think wine is very... That's a big thing about wine. There's wines that you're going to love that I'm going to hate. And there's wines that I'm going to love that you're going to hate. Whether it's traditional, natural, whatever it is, that's just, it's the way it is. So kind of, you know, go to a good shop and, and find, you know, say, hey, I'm looking for, I don't know, I want to drink a, a red that's light and peppery or whatever, whatever, red fruit, black, whatever you're looking for. And say, hey, I'd like to try something that's, you know, produced in a more natural way or is organic. Just start with organic or biodynamic. And and see what you like. As for producers, I mean, I could go all over the place. There is when I was in Jura, there's a bunch of producers there that I like, but that's a certain certain type of wine. Yeah, I mean, last night I was with a with a bunch of people that are training for their master psalm test, and we were drinking a bunch of fun natural wines. But it, it all depends on. I think you got to start with the wine you wine you like. I think that's really where it starts. 
So I would like to pick your brain. You know, I always ask the chef on the podcast to come up with a suggestion how to cook, you know, something specific at home, you know, from like a, a food enthusiast like I am. So I was thinking because of your, you know, experience in at Mexican food and then as well French food is maybe we take like a beef tartare and maybe you can give us some pointers on how to execute it like your style, but like French way and then Mexican way as well. Tartare and chicken livers are usually the two things that when I go to go to restaurants, I almost will always order. So I usually always have a tartare on our on my menu. So if I was going to do it French, like I mean, we have it on our menu right now. Actually, I mean, a lot of it is so. Like I said, there's a lot of like the traditional stuff. So like, there's definitely like shallots and some capers in there, and you know, a little Dijon mustard. Honestly, if you threw that in a bowl with some nice chopped steak and a baguette and a, a good bottle of natural wine. You'd be all set for a, for a nice dinner. Where we kind of put a little twist on it, so we add some uh, some fermented hot sauce to it that we we make at the restaurant. So like, I like it to just have like, yeah, you can just do the the steak and a little bit of the like I said, the shallots and the capers, but to just give it a little more like punch and a little more acid. There's like we add a little red wine vinegar. There's the Dijon mustard and the chili in there, so it just has more. All the flavors are upped, which which I like in my food. So that's kind of how we do it. You literally could just buy some. Maybe not something super spicy, but find a find a hot sauce that you like and add a couple of drops, and it would still be very French as long as you know have a nice piece of bread with it, and that's a good dinner. And and put an egg as well, I guess, correct? Yeah, yeah, a little little egg on there would be uh, be great. That's always a good touch. Okay, so Mexican way now. Yeah, so I mean, instead of going baguette, you're going to go tostada, obviously. So you can usually find those in most stores, or you know, make your own if you want. You can always uh, fry some. If you had some maybe tacos the day before and you got some tortillas left over, you fry them real quick or dry them out. You can even bake them uh, low temperature to dry them out. And then kind of same same theory, maybe just with some, you know, you could open up a can of chipotles that you can get from the store and season it with that and put a little, you know, some type of mayo on there. And you'd be good to go with something like a little avocado would be nice on there. So you get a little little fat and yeah, I think something like that, some some salt and pepper and you're you're good to go. Okay, very good. So I'm going to uh, finish your, our conversation with a, a series of rapid fire questions, if uh, I may. Oh, now the real questions. <laughs> no, no, rapid fire. No, no, that's fine. You and I are going on a tasting uh, tour in Washington, D.C. So what are the five spots that you are going to take me to? And of course, I will have been to Lutes before. I mean, I'm still pretty new to D.C., so uh, I'm still I'm still figuring out myself. But Queen's English is, me and Isabel, that's like one of our neighborhood spots, and we, we love them over there. They're great. LB, their food is amazing. What he's doing over wood fire over there and the pita bread is like phenomenal. So LB, for wine, I really like to go to uh, Maxwell Park. They have one in Navy Yard and one in Shaw. Uh, Shaw is right around the corner from us. So we're uh, usually there and uh, there's some, some good cooking going on over there now too. So we ate some good food, good, good food last night. Oui, Mazako. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she, yeah. she's amazing. I had her on the, on the podcast as well. Uh, yeah, Ellie is Ellie is great, which is actually as soon as uh, this podcast is over, that's where me and Isabella are going to eat dinner. Then I need one more, probably Bresca or John. Those those guys over there are what they're trying to do. And uh, I've eaten at Bresca and I've known Ryan for, for years now. And they're, John is uh, amazing and Bresca and stuff. So yeah, I would say those. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Oh, guilty pleasure, tacos. Tacos? Tacos. Any time? Pastor is probably my favorite. Pastor. Oh, Pastor yeah. tacos is yeah. probably my favorite. Yeah, absolutely. 
So you you were talking that you started learning cooking, uh, you know, with cracking eggs. So what's your favorite way of uh, cooking eggs? A good omelet, just classic classic omelet. Just it has to be cooked right though. Don't no color on the outside. Don't overcook the eggs. I made a lot of those to get them the right way, and that that's that's how I enjoy my omelet. So that's that's the way. Three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your. I, I mentioned one of them earlier. So Escoffier, that's still one of my one of my go tos. Probably. The French Laundry Cookbook. I think that's any any chef and probably my my age group is always gonna gonna say that. And I think you can still open that today and it's still relevant. And a third, probably the not one of her books, but Diana Kennedy cookbooks. When I got into Mexican food, her reference books are you know, there's probably not somebody that knows much more than she does on Mexican food. Okay, and the last question before you go to Ellie: What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Oh. Uh, I feel like my, my, my cooks would probably answer this better than I would. Probably, I have a couple, but just uh, dirty, dirty stations. That's uh, it, like not, not wiping down, not keeping things organized, especially like Lutessa is such a small kitchen and an open kitchen, just not staying organized. And that's my, my biggest pet peeve. Okay, Chef, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on, uh, on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was it was good. Happy to finally do this, and hopefully we see you soon. Thank you for listening today. I really love to hear Chef McConroy's passion for French and Mexican cuisine and his desire to learn about the regional specialties while traveling through the two countries. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or a colleague and leave a review wherever you're listening to podcasts. If you have not yet checked out the Facebook group, The Learning Chef, please have a look at it. It is an education community of chefs and cooks. My next guest will be Chef Chris Kajioka from the restaurant Miro in Honolulu that he reopened with his business partner, Chef Murad Lalu. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.